This is a message from the Art Intelligence Agency. Welcome to AI Agents, a program that explores the intersections of innovation and artificial intelligence. This podcast is brought to you by a collaboration between the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and the C.F. Fowler Institute at the University of Adelaide. Join our host, Tim Whiffen, in conversation with creatives, academics, and professionals in exploring how human and artificial intelligence can collaborate in divergent ideas for our future. Whether art imitates life or life imitates art, commentary on things like society or nature are integral to many artistic motivations. While AI isn't yet considered a member of our society, could it ever really make those kinds of commentary? Perhaps AI itself can be the subject of criticism in an art installation. AI has the capability to perfectly identify patterns, and that has uses in computing, but it also has the power to illustrate patterns in society that we might not have otherwise recognised. Equally, identifying patterns in nature has untold power for an age where conservation of natural resources is of utmost importance. There are artists that have pondered these questions for some time, and have used the digital, and the seemingly unnatural, to commentate or improve the natural. Tigger Brain is an Australian-born artist, engineer, and industry assistant professor at New York University, with an established history in conservation efforts and sophisticated expression. Tiga graces the Art Intelligence Agency with her presence to discuss some of her work and explore the relationship between the digital and the natural. I am joined today at the Art Intelligence Agency by Agent Tiga Brain. Thank you for speaking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's an absolute privilege to talk to you. Uh, I'd like to start by asking if you could explain to our audience briefly your, your research or artistic interests. Sure, yeah. I work mostly as an artist. And my art practice is informed by, I guess, by still by my background in environmental engineering. So I'm often making work that examines the way that technologies and infrastructures shape our relationship to environment, shape our ecology, but also produce certain ways of thinking about our place in our environments. And so it often takes, my work often takes the form of online interventions, installations in museums and galleries. And it's also always very experimental. So I'm often building systems that might do things like try to imagine what technologies that function like in dialogue with the environmental systems look like, or think about infrastructures that might attempt to structure relationships like based on mutualism. So how, you know, do we think in a multi-species way at an infrastructural level? And more, more recently, and probably most relevant to your audience, I've, for the last few years, have been doing work that looks at these questions through computation, right? And so I've done a, a number of projects that kind of look at machine learning and artificial intelligence and how these technologies produce certain ways of seeing the environment and then also certain ways of therefore acting acting in the world. And so, yeah, what does it mean uh, at a time of, you know, concurrent environmental emergencies that we've also got this sort of like, sometimes I say surplus of computing, right? We have uh, a computational capacity to sort of build data-driven systems and use those methodologies to engage with those problems. And so I'm very interested in like, what that means, what the opportunities are, what the limitations of these technologies are. And as an artist, I sort of have the 
freedom or, or, you know, that as a field you have this sort of capacity to kind of experiment with these things in a public way, invite audiences into these questions and sort of put, put these technologies to a kind of experimental use, if you like. Yeah, yeah, kind of put them in the public sphere. Give them a pub test, I guess, if we want to use an Australian-ism. <laughs> I'm interested by your latest book where you make an argument for code being sort of an artistic practice, which intuitively sounds like a little odd, you know, putting letters and stuff into Python or whatever it may be. It doesn't seem to have a reputation for being creative, but in the sense that you actually create something with it, it is creative. What kind of um, future or, or faith do you have in this process being, I guess, the, the, the art of the next generation, if you could call it that? Well, it's interesting. I know that, you know, software might seem like the most, you know, obvious medium for an artist to work in. However, if you look at the history of computation, right, like from the very outset, you know, there have been artists experimenting with it, right? So, you know, throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, you can find artistic experiments in the medium of software. So artists making sort of like generative work, you know, this raises questions of authorship, you know, if you're sort of producing a procedure or a system, you know, and you're not sure how it's going to play out, like what does that mean for the role of the artist? And so, yeah, it's, it's not actually a new field. What has happened is, I think it's roughly 20 years ago, you know, John Mader's group at the Media Lab started making tools that sort of shorten the distance between coding and visual outputs. So that has been quite challenging historically. You know, you would need institutional support or like technical know-how how to do that. His group there started, the Media Lab started to, you know, work that problem. How do you make tools that are sort of more accessible and more like uh, addressing artistic needs? And a couple of his students, Ben Fry and Casey Rees, then came out of that program and made this environment called Processing. And this is now an environment that's sort of taught in art schools all around the world. And, you know, it's the sort of bridge that got me into this field as well. It's well-documented and it's, it's specifically designed for, like, creative people. And so that, since that time, you know, there's been a whole host of other sort of artistic software tools that have been developed. And, you know, because of that work, the field has sort of really grown and expanded over the sort of last couple of decades, you know, and so now, yeah, like every art school is teaching creative coding. And I think also, you know, obviously so much media and culture has gone online. So, yeah, there's, there's a accelerating and expanding, increasing amount of interest in software as, as this context for for creative work and for creative expression, but also for critique, you know. So that's something I'm really interested in is how, how to make systems that, you know, are sort of rhetorical, like about discourse, about like asking uh, tricky questions about technology. Interesting. Sorry, am I understanding that it can be taught to make critiques? Sorry, was that the point of that last point? Yeah, so like... You know, one of the goals in my work and one of the things that I'm very interested in is, yeah, like how using these tools, using these technologies to ask critical questions about them, right? So, you know, I can, I can give you some examples of a number of works that I've done, right? So 20, 2015, 2016 was really like the years where fitness tracking sort of exploded and, you know, throughout all the subways here in the U.S., 
you know, Fitbit is advertising. There's like insurance companies doing deals with fitness trackers, giving people discounts on insurance, like, you know, data. It was really this moment where like personal data suddenly became, became very obvious how valuable it was in yeah. certain sectors. And so ethical questions as well. Right. Of course. What does it mean if your health insurance company like has access to that or your employer? Or, yeah. 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 Um, and so I'm, I worked with another artist, Surya Matu, and we sort of created this work called Unfit Bits. And it was the, it's this whole online guide of how to obfuscate your fitness data. So how to fake like fit, fit data, right? So like, we put Fitbits on, you know, dogs and metronomes and anything that would move basically with this question of like, you know, what, what does the world look like from the point of view of an accelerometer? And what does fitness look like from the point of view of these, you know, very narrow kind of data-driven systems? You know, so it, it was sort of this satirical, playful invitation for people to really question the authority of those technologies. And so artists have an important role to play in sort of asking those questions and pointing out that these technologies often have big blind spots or break in particular ways um, that, you know, the Silicon Valley marketing teams are not going to tell, you know, tell, tell you about or be upfront about. So, yeah, a lot of my work and a lot of the work of the community I'm in is sort of looking at those places where, you know, the, the promise of the technology doesn't really line up with the way it's actually working on the ground. And, of course, that also plays into issues of, like, gender, race and class, you know, because it benefits some groups and it's going to really disadvantage or harm others. You can yeah. see the inherent biases in the kind of software development even. Yeah. Absolutely, Yeah. I mean, another work that I did, again, you know, it's, it was a, <laughs> a silly project, is called Smell Dating. And so we made a, like an online dating service where the only way you were able to choose dates was based on smell. And, you know, we asked people to, we, you know, we had hundreds of people sign up here in New York and sent them all T-shirts, asked them to wear the T-shirts for three days preferably without deodorant and then they sent the shirts back to us and then they each participant got a set of 10 swatches from which they could choose potential dates and then if there was a sort of mutual match you know our system automatically put you in an email with your match and you could decide to go on a date or not but you know as playful as that sounds and it was you know when people went on dates and you know um there were you know relationships that came out of it and the whole thing but it also really came out of us thinking about, and, I, you know, it's a collaboration as well. I did it with an, a fellow artist, Sam Levine, but also really thinking about like the way that online dating happens, right? It's mostly about visual information. Mm. It's all about the profile picture. We could talk about that in terms of gender, right? Um, and the way that that plays out for various genders and so, yeah, I, we were really thinking about like what, what experiences or what ways of knowing do dating platforms leave out, right? And obviously like smell or like material kind of experiences is something, as we all well know in the pandemic, um, is something that, yeah, c- computation just doesn't represent well. <laughs> I wonder whether you could do some kind of, th- this is going to show a lack of understanding of how that how pheromones work i'm sure but i wonder whether you could do some kind of chemical analysis and then put like add the data in and kind of do like profiling you could almost set people up with without them even smelling something and knowing exactly (laughs) what kinds of smells they like 
of course, that's that's sort of where this goes, right? Is you're like, mm, what role does smell play? You know, can it be quantified? Could yeah. could we optimize that experience in in certain ways? And you know, I mean, Sam wanted to like launch a recruitment service where you know you would apply for jobs just by sending them your t-shirt <laughs> but you know as a joke but I think the reason why our proposition is interesting is because you know there is this ongoing question of like what role does smell play and like how important is it and you know it's obviously super powerful because you know you pick up the t-shirt of someone you love and you know you have that experience and that feeling that it's very strong and yet, you know, it's really unknown to science, right? We still don't really know how the nose like actually interprets molecules. That's yeah. like, there's a few different theories out there. And so I think the work kind of invites people into that question of what role does smell play? But it also really, like, I think celebrates the fact that the body is amazing, you know, and there's these different types of intelligences and that you know, smells given this reputation for being subjective, but, you know, you know if you like someone's smell or not. Like, it's actually yeah. very clear. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, and so we're sort of asking you to trust that intuition and not necessarily rely on some algorithm that is opaque, that, you know, okay, Cupid might throw at you and tell you you should date this person. So It's so interesting that oh, artists have had constraints throughout their process uh, for, for as you know, as long as kind of art has, ex has existed where, you know, you can kind of constrained by your tools. A brush only works in a certain way and perhaps AI or perhaps, you know, coding will only allow a, a certain level of a, a certain kind of outcome. You know, we don't have an, a limitless expanse of what we can do with that yet. I, yeah, I, and I think <laughs> I'm often thinking about, you know, like where, what intelligence do we recognize? Mm. What types of intelligence uh you know obviously like there's this whole like the whole ai the rise or you know expansion of ai over the past decade has meant that you know that word has become associated with this sort of like data-driven computational way of reading and, and interpreting the world but that's so that's just one you know way <laughs> that that the world can be sort of read or interpreted like yeah, and so I think with my work, I'm often asking that question of like ask or asking, you know, asking uh, audiences or people experiencing my work to recognize that that you know to recognize that it is just one of many ways of knowing, right? Mm. And I think particularly in the technology industries, you know, the the, the computational worldview gets overemphasized. Mm. I, I really like how you're describing ways of knowing. Obviously, it touches on the millennia of philosophical discourse but you know it's interesting bringing that into the art realm because it's relatable <laughs> um <laughs> as someone who has you know kind of come into this world of, of ai art do, do, do you see a future where ai can replicate like human ways of knowing do you think those things will ever meet i i don't um i know that that's sort of like the uh, you know, uh, the public imagination for a lot of AI, thanks to cinema and, you know, and a lot of sort of cultural explorations of it. I think it's, you know, powerful and interesting for the opposite reason, though, because it is like a completely different non-human way of interpreting 
the world or complexity, right? Like, you know, AI in its sort of current form, you know, is mostly machine learning, as, as you mentioned. Hmm. And, you know, so it's like statistical processes, it's based on huge data sets, it's based on those data sets having been tagged or, or categorized or interpreted by humans at some point. And that, you know, that process is so different to, you know, a human interpretation of something, right? Like these data sets are of a size that, you know, an individual can't really experience them or, or look through them or deal with them. And so that difference is why I think it's interesting. And I think, you know, attempts to try to interpret that or bring it closer to the human is actually like, that's where it gets confusing. And I think yeah. that's where a lot of like mistakes are made. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but that's a, it's a great explanation of why the pattern that we've been finding on the podcast is that artists tend to collaborate with AI, tend to use AI as augmented intelligence, which is weird because it's artificial, but yeah, uh, they augment intelligence by, by, by working with AI, but, sort of not giving it entire autonomy because it what does a computer have to communicate to humans if if art really is just about communication and it was a really probably the most concise explanation of why that is the case right and i mean if you if you look at also just the way like ai is being used in chess right yeah um so augmented chess is the collaboration between you know, the use of uh, a human player and a machine player. And that's where mm -hmm. it gets really interesting and powerful. And I think, you know, I think it, one could um, see some of, some of that approach being used in the arts as well, where it is this like generative tool in a way. And I think, you know, like work, people working with GANs, I've done a little bit of work in that domain, Mm. which are, you know, um, generative adversarial networks and, you know, it can be used to sort of generate imagery or fill in imagery or combine and work with images in ways. Mm. Yeah, again, there's always this like human hand in it, right? Like they pick the data sets or they refine the exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They're, they're intervening in very specific ways to, to shape the outcome, yeah, and to tell a particular story. Mm. I want to finish up just by asking if you could let us know what work you're uh, involved with at the moment. Oh, sure. I just uh, launched a project actually, which is a project that is uh, engaged with artificial intelligence, but from a sort of different perspective. So it's a project called Solar Protocol and the work takes the form of a network of solar powered servers. So uh, solar powered servers, just a, you know, a small solar panel battery that's running a, a, in our case, a Raspberry Pi. So just a really small computer. Cool. Um, and the interesting thing about solar power, right, is if you run a computer with it, you know, it's intermittent, like your computer will be on when the sun's on. But if you have a few really gray winter days, you know, your, your system might go down and you have to wait till it's sunny again. Right. So there's a very different kind of quality <laughs> to that kind of energy system. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were interested in this one because like, aren't we all just sick of being on computers all the time? So maybe there is a beautiful like opportunity there for a different relationship with computing if it is powered by renewables. Yeah. You know, it's also interesting if you then think about like 
what are computers good for? They're really good at, for networking. Like, what if we, um, you know, uh, set up a network where there's solar powered servers in different time zones and different weather systems around the world? So it's a network that does just this. Um, so we have about half a dozen of them at the moment. And they're all hosting um, the websites so or web platform and the internet traffic. So when you visit that web platform, you're sent to whichever server is in the sun, is in the most sunshine at that time. So this is sort of a way we've been thinking about natural intelligence, right? If artificial intelligence is about automating decisions, and in, in many cases it is, then, you know, actually there's a lot of automation that happens all around us in our environment. You know, a healthy ecosystem is one where automation is at play, you know, that humans aren't intervening and having to manage it. And so by having a network of computers where the, you know, the routing and the decisions about where content is being served from is dictated by solar energy or by where it, what the sun is doing, you know, it's, it's automating those, that digital network um, through using, you know, an environmental um, dynamic and an environmental, I don't want to say the word system, but <laughs> right by the, by the pattern of the sun. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, our, the project is very much trying to, again, recognize intelligence and automation in other places, in non-human systems, in our environments that, you know, we live with these things. They're not exclusive to like human technical systems. Mm. Yeah. So you can visit the project. It's at solarprotocol.net actually, I think. And we're, yeah, we're, you know, it's ongoing. So um, we're setting up some more servers and it's the sort of experiment of like, what, what does it look like to do something like this? You know, what are the opportunities if we switch out um, the energy system. So our, you know, tracking and data collection is energy intensive, right? We're not doing any of that because we are sort of in, a, we've got to think carefully about what's happening in terms of energy expenditure. So all of a sudden you then get a very different type of internet with a very different politics because of these constraints. So we're not using JavaScript, like all of our graphics and so forth are generated server side. And so, yeah, just it, it means you make very different design decisions, which, are, which is very interesting. So, you know, I think, I mean, I think this is something that we should, all should be working on is like, you know, what does low carbon culture look like, right? And how do we get there? Mm, wow. Yeah. Well, Agent Tiger Brain, I, I really want to thank you <laughs> for, for joining me and, and, and providing your insights and your time uh, to discuss yeah, these fascinating topics. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been really fun talking to you. If you're fascinated by Tiga's work, you can find more of her insights in her book, Code as Creative Medium, or find her projects and art through the links in the episode description. Tiga has been instrumental in bringing engineering and fine art together, and she is an excellent communicator through the medium of TED Talks as much as she is on the metaphorical canvas. Thanks for listening to AI Agents. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher and consider giving it a review. Do not forget that you can share this episode with other intelligent people and things, but for now, it is time to close the pod bay doors, Hal.